G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode, we got to have a very honest and brutal deep dive into depression, anxiety, and alcohol use with a good friend of mine, Sarah Cawthorn, who is a non-clinical mental health worker, a personal trainer, and just an all-round amazing human being. So I hope you guys enjoy this as much as I did catching up with Sarah. Where should we start? Because normally I start with how people got into OT, but that would not be a very good question right now. Um, it'd be a very redundant question. It would be. I'd be like, sorry, mate. Yeah, yeah. I uh, haven't. Haven't. Yeah. Short, I work with them. Short but... answer. So you do work with them. I work alongside them. That's why I said to you that one time, I, I really like getting referrals from OTs because they're always the most practical, straightforward, clear referrals. So what, because actually this is something I'm not 100%, what do you do? So you work in mental health. But what is your role? Yeah, so I'm in non-clinical mental health in the community. So um, I guess we fill the gap. There's like your GPs, your psychiatrists, your psychologists, your OTs. We kind of do everything else. So your really practical day-to-day stuff. So um, The program I most recently worked for was transitioning people who have a diagnosed mental illness who are in the corrections system, so they're in jail, um, and are due for release soon. um, We're we're responsible for helping them transition back out into the community, set up everything around, like the clinicians around them, so they're better prepared, help with housing, just all that day-to-day stuff. I think I've heard of similar programs. Although I have, I did a placement in a program that wasn't corrections. It was transitioning people from long-term hospitalization into community. And that was mm-hmm. I, I loved it. That was that was yeah. actually that was that placement that actually got me into mental health. I just fell in love with it after that when I was at uni. Yeah, um, but it's just because it's. I think I loved it so much because you kind of. It's not like really narrow like you work with whatever they need like if yeah, they need yeah. you know if they need how to learn how to clean a house like you can do that if they need to learn how to manage like community engagement like shopping and grocery shopping and that kind of stuff like whatever you need to do to go out in the community if you mm-hmm. you know if they need to learn how to find a job like you can work with anything and I think that's what I liked about it so much is it's so broad and like I I've said this before I get, I get bored very easily so the, the broadness of it definitely appealed to me. <laughs> yeah, so where where you guys finish, we sort of pick up where you left off. So we keep doing all those skills development yeah. and, yeah, supporting them for long term. So do you have clinicians in your team or is it like a team of like support, like non, non-clinical support? Yeah, yeah, it's like that. And so we try and develop relationships with the clinicians um, and we'll receive... This particular program, we receive uh, referrals straight from prison mental health. So they're all OTs or psychologists or social workers. Um, But other programs I've worked in, similar to the one you were just describing, um, it's the same thing. We work alongside clinicians. So the people you're working with would still be engaged in, say, the mental health service? They'd have like case managers and stuff or are they completely out by the time they get to you guys? Well... 
Back in the old days, <laughs> like well, back in the old days, I'm talking like five years so ago. Old. Yeah, everything. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like things have changed so much in the mental health world yeah, just in yeah. the last few years. So back when I first started working mental health, everyone absolutely had a community case manager. Yeah, yeah. Now there's so much pressure for them to refer, refer out into the community, push them out of their books that like the funding's not there. So like there's only a very small handful that would still have case management and now it's being pushed out to GPs who are sort of not. It's not their wheelhouse. No. (laughs) So, yeah, it's it's not. Anyway, that's a side story. How do you see that? So from your your non-clinical side, how do you see that change? Is it for the better? Is it detrimental? Like what's your opinion of that? that particular change in the the system because i have mine Um, i'm just curious of what the non-clinical opinion is well i mean i guess it depends from person to person some people i i think still need that clinical support um they might have only just come out of hospital and you know the the health system for people that work work in it is hard enough let alone all the other extra stuff on your plate um so it varies from person to person, but as just as a support worker or a rehabilitation worker or whatever, I think we enjoy that clinical backup because <laughs> you've got someone to bounce off um, and you've got more direction with where to go. So we become very experienced in a lot of different things, but yeah. it's nice to have someone to call and say, this is what's happening clinically. What do you suggest? So you become a bit of a jack of all trades. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like I mean I've I have noticed that change as well, and mainly from well when I was working clinically, I'm not now, but when I was working clinically a couple of years ago, it was like I noticed a change in I guess the directions that we were getting coming down from management and that kind of stuff, which was you know get people out, get people through the program, discharge uh-huh. them, and there was a big push. Probably, yeah, like you said, in the last five years or so to discharge people to GPs. Yeah. But then we were always the first ones to complain when people would come back to us because the GP changed the medication and something went pear-shaped and why didn't the GP know? Well, the GP know because they're a general practitioner, not a mental health practitioner like Exactly. They, they they may not have we don't we're not vetting these GPs for their mental health competencies before we discharge to them. We're just discharging to them. That's so right. like if we, I can't blame the GP. Like a it's a system failure, but not a failure. It's a system hiccup. We'll say that much. Sure, that's cool. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's interesting that yeah you guys are seeing the same. This well, it's good that you guys are seeing the same thing that we were as well because. Like there's a lot of people that, not a lot, but it would happen every now and then that we would be advocating to keep people on our books mm-hmm. and, you know, we would get the, the order down from upstairs saying, you know, no, this person's fine. Like, you know, the stuff you're working on isn't critical, so you can discharge yeah. them and so or, or link them in probably with a service similar to yours where they don't need our level of support we can discharge them and get you know the the non-government organizations or or another organization to to follow up with them but it's i think you're right i think there are a lot of people being caught up in that process that still need uh, i guess more support Uh, for me the ideal 
model would be for like the clinical and non-clinical, like you said, to work together. So the clinical can model monitor the clinical stuff and non-clinical yeah. can you know, do what you guys do and follow up and support the person probably with more hours, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys, yeah. You guys probably have more capacity to put more time into people when you're working with them. So yeah, absolutely. That would be the ideal model. I don't know. It, I'm sure it happens somewhere in the world. It'd be interesting to see how it, how that works if it if it is working like that somewhere. Well, that'd be great, yeah. Because the nature of mental illness, you know, it goes up and down. So sometimes you won't need all that clinical support. Everyone's great, cruising along, and then next thing you know, they might have become unwell again, and we need that support again. But the process of getting everyone back into the system, yeah, it's not easy. And I think that's, that was the, what I really loved about the team that I was in before I left for the uni. We were an intensive rehabilitation team. So we had the capacity to adjust with those fluctuations in the individual. So, you know, some weeks, some of the guys that I was working with, they might have needed to see me every day. And the next week, like it could be, you know, like really rapid fluctuation. Next week, they might not see me at all or they might only need to see me once. Like, but we had the capacity and the flexibility to be able to adjust with them and support them as is. And that was really good. The only issue with that is from a a system point of view is that's a really expensive team to run. Yeah. And that's unfortunately, health is a business and that's often what, Often the priority that some people sort of focus on is we're paying you however many thousand dollars a year and mm-hmm. you're only sporting eight people at a time. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, but look at the big picture. We're keeping You've you out of hospital, and well, if, if we're keeping people out of hospital, that's a thousand dollars a day. So that's you know, a month, that's a good thing. <laughs> almost two months, and or two months and whatever, and you've almost paid half a people half a people's salary or most of people's salary. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gotta look at the the big picture, not just the how many people, how many. It's almost like FTE. It's like HR. Like, yeah, how many people are you supporting? So yeah, when KPIs came in, it we got it became a bit stressful. What's that? Key performance indicators. Yeah, uh, my issue with them, and I, it was in the service that I, the health service I was working in, but I've talked to a lot of people around the world about their health services, and it's mostly the same. Yeah. Is that none of the KPIs were related to the person, like their their improvement or their satisfaction with the service or anything. It was always risk. Yeah. All KPIs, all the all the KPIs that we had to meet or that were mandated for us to meet were all around risk. Mm-hmm. So there was nothing there was no like institutional incentive to do a really good job. Yeah. Which frustrated me. Yeah. So do you yeah. guys, are your KPIs similar? Like do you, are they based um, on risk or are they? It's more around paperwork. So I'm guessing it's more from the top end, it would be funding stuff. Yeah. Um, but for us, the practical side of having to complete um, certain paperwork with clients can be a struggle if they're acutely unwell, but it's due the next day. Like, <laughs> and then you're not ticking that box. But so we get pretty creative i guess you have to be (laughs) so it's Um, more around so you're doing the paperwork like on behalf of the person to get funding to support that person and you have to keep on top of that is that what it is um well i guess all the funding submissions and all that's done um right up the top but 
they need, I mean, just organisational paperwork, which would feed up the chain. Because I know like a lot of our KPIs, again, to do with paperwork around like documentation and assessments and that kind of stuff. But again, mm-hmm. they're all based off risk. Yeah. It's like this needs to be done within, you know, there was some that need to be done every three months. And that was yeah. based on the fact that research-wise, if it was done any longer than that, the risk increases of people getting unwell. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, can't find your client. <laughs> well, that happens. and that's, It really does. That was a big thing. People, so. especially if they're not a big fan of the service or, you know, don't want to be there, they just won't be there. Same as anyone else. If I didn't want to be here, I probably wouldn't be here. That's right. We'd be counselling. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. They, um, I think oh, we forget that people, even if they have a mental illness, still have that choice. Of course. I was talking to my students this week about the fact that people, and it wasn't specifically about mental health, but people in health have the choice whether or not they accept the service. Mm-hmm. Like it could be, I mean, we've got DNRs, so do not resuscitate. And so like people have the choice to say whether they want to be resuscitated. Mm-hmm. And it might be really difficult for the clinician to just want to help and want to deliver a service, but if the person doesn't want it, you can't do it. It's That's the same right. thing for all aspects. Like, it, granted, there are certain exceptions within mental health, like with the Mental Health Act and that kind of thing, where yeah. we can forcibly give someone treatment based mm-hmm. on you know, there's all rules and stuff around that. We're not just throwing that out willy nilly, usually, but. For the most part, people have a choice whether they accept treatment at all. Yes. And I think and that's, that's, good. that's, yeah, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of the time clinicians forget that and they just assume that, you know, oh, you're, you're presenting these symptoms, you're unwell, we need to fix you or help you or treat you or whatever it is that they think that they're doing. Yeah. So Keeping I think those that's, boxes. yeah, and I think that's important that people remember that, you know, they may not want you. They may not care what you think mm-hmm. is important. So so you've been working in mental health for five years, did you say? Uh, no, this is oh, 13 or 14 oh. now. Yeah, I'm just talking about um, I noticed a change in the system. Oh, ah, okay. Me. Oh, so you've been in that longer than me. So when I said the good old days, I meant it. You meant the good <laughs> old days. Yeah. Wow. And you've been doing the same kinds of roles the whole time or you sort of changed it around or? Yeah, similar roles. Um, uh, started off in support work in like residential care with uh, young guys that had just been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, so that was, I, I fell in love with that job. That was great. That yeah, was a really awesome. good learning experience too, first job. And then went through to that housing sort of transition that you were talking about before. Yep. Um, and I worked in that for a really long time. And then in the prison system, it, yeah, kind of a bit of everything. That's awesome. Man, yeah. you've been doing this longer than me. You're the expert. You should be interviewing me. <laughs> I don't have the degree, Brock. That doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm, I'm a firm believer in experience over qualifications. Mm-hmm. My degree, and my degree didn't really do a lot of in-depth mental health stuff. It gave us the basics, but nothing that you couldn't pick up just working in the field for a year, I reckon. Yeah, you pick up a lot pretty quickly. I think my like most of my mental health stuff, I didn't really start learning until I was on placement. So it was like on the job experience kind of thing. So yeah, we get or well, back then we didn't get a lot. We get more now. I know that because I teach it. But mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah, back then we didn't get a lot of mental health at all, I don't think. Not that I can remember it. Well, not that I actually attended. <laughs> probably, probably wagging or sleeping in or something. Who knows? Typical. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Nothing's changed. <laughs> or 13 years later or however long it is. Yeah. So we were talking, well, we've talked a lot because we know each other. <laughs> so if yes, that isn't clear, yeah. we we know each other through uh, mutual love of powerlifting. Yes, we do. And I can't even remember, when did we meet? 2016 or something? Was that IU comp? It was yeah, a while yeah. Ago. It, yeah, that would have been 2016. End of 2016. So this isn't just completely out of the blue. No, <laughs> I'm not some random. Well, yeah. <laughs> but we we have spoken about or you've you've spoken about your personal struggles with some mental health mm-hmm. issues what what are you able to elaborate what was what was going on yeah sure um so i have had a long time experience of depression and anxiety which i think over time gradually went into using uh, substances to self-medicate, I guess. Um, so alcohol really came to a head probably last year. Yeah. So I, thinking back, I probably had my first sort of like bad episode of depression when I was about fourteen. Um, and then it sort only of couple, came only back a couple in, of years ago. Then. What? <laughs> Cute rock. Um, <laughs> and that sort of came back in like waves over the years, um, some worse than others. Uh, a couple of times I ended up on medication, um, which helped at the time, but it had generally been therapy and changing my like environmental factors that sort of helped the most. Um, but yeah, slowly over time, I think the alcohol became the biggest thing. So those waves, was there any pattern? Were they like regular like when it would sort of come back, it was like every two years sort of thing or? Yeah, it probably came, it became a bit of a pattern coming back in in winter and okay. I feel like I can't really say that would be like the seasonal affective disorder or anything because we live in Australia, it's not that cold. We don't have that many seasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, that seemed to be the pattern. So possibly just staying inside more being less active that's the thing and even like uh clinically working like i used to notice more of that during winter and even even in australia when you know we go oh it's winter and other countries go yeah (laughs) summer temperatures but i think you're right i think the just the changes in what people actually do Mm -hmm. can have an effect and yes it may not be as big an effect as like alaska where it's well, I could be making this up, but there's somewhere up there that's, you know, yeah. dark for six months. Whereas, All the time. Yeah. You know, I think we lose, what, an hour of daylight or something. Sunset, sunset goes from like 7.30 to 6.30. Yeah, it's stressful. But, you know, <laughs> but it's not that bad. I know, I know. You're one of these people advocating for daylight savings, aren't you? Uh <laughs> Well, no, because I always live near the border of Queensland and New South Wales, so it's an absolute nightmare having two different time zones. That is true. That would be hectic. Yeah. At least when if I you work in one and live in the other, or have an appointment in one and live in the other, it's. Oh. But yeah, like I, I think even in our, let's say, milder winters than mm-hmm. some places in the world, I think it's still a definite pattern there. Yeah. Well, I was living in the Blue Mountains when I. 
as an adult, probably um, the worst depression I'd experienced um, was in the Blue Mountains and it gets really cold there. Like it sleeps and <laughs> almost snows. And for me, um, that's that was really cold and it was depressing and it was isolating and it was always misty. Yeah. Um, so that was when I went on medication. I was self-harming at the time. I was using other substances besides alcohol um, just to kind of get through. Um, but on the outside, I was still studying, working. You sort of wouldn't know. I became really a pro at hiding it. Did anyone pick it up or did anyone notice? A few close friends did because I became, I isolate myself. That's one of the things I do. So if you don't hear from me in a long time, yep. people will start to kind of question what's actually going on. Yep. Um, my boyfriend who I was living with at the time obviously knew what was going on, but I sort of didn't really tell my family or anything like that. They picked up on it after a while, but. So when you were, so what sort of things, like how, how do you hide it? How would you hide something like that? Obviously, obviously, obviously by staying away from people would be one way to hide it, but was there anything else that you did yeah. to? Well, if you're still meeting like the bare requirements, so if life, you're still yeah. like getting up, going to work or yep. getting up, going to your course or whatever you're doing at the time, if you can still turn up, do an okay job when you're there, people don't tend to be paying much attention to anyone else. So, yeah. yeah, you're able to sort of fly under the radar. And because I'm not naturally like a loud, outgoing sort of person, me being quiet is not an unusual thing. Yep. So I think that kind of worked in my favour when I wanted to be flying under the radar. Interesting. And that's, I was going to, you could say that's like a sad thing with society today that we just don't have those real close connections with anybody anymore like that no one's that people can fly under the radar and you know yeah i mean the people that care about you will pick up on that yeah, yeah. um well you hope so well you hope so but if you're in a classroom full of other students like you guaranteed everyone's got their own shit going on <laughs> that is true also what is it one yeah. in four one in five I think so. one in four something to that i effect. think it's one in four now is um affected to uh, will be affected by some form of mental health uh issue throughout their life yeah and i think and it's like one in, i think it's one in three will know someone or one in two it's a lot anyway it'd be a lot yeah look I around the room there's a few two. people in there pretty much yeah yeah because i like I, I i can resonate with that because i've had my own sort of issues with depression over the years uh mm -hmm. and i can definitely resonate with the hiding it thing yeah which that's why I'm, I'm curious about it because I'm like, I know what I did. And then like for me anyway, it got to the point with the depression where it, it's kind of this like numbness mm -hmm. where you, you don't feel. But for me, when I was hiding it, it was very deliberate. And this was actually before I sort of realized what was going on. Yeah. Because I know how I should react in a certain situation, even though I'm not feeling it, I would pretend so yeah. like, I know when someone says something funny, I should laugh. Or I know yeah. that, you know, if you're watching a sad movie, you should be sad kind of thing. So you would kind of like just act based on what you knew should happen in those situations. That's That was me anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a self-preservation thing. Like sometimes just having a conversation when you feel like that, like it hurts. It's, a, it's every ounce of energy you can possibly get, mm -hmm. like you, is to have that conversation. So... You, you do you want to hide it sometimes 
and how you were saying numbness, I, I described it as I felt like I was under mud, like everything was thick and dark and heavy and yep. you just had this constant barrier around you and it was really cold and uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I've heard other people describe it as like living your life in honey, like trying to move through honey. Yeah. Everything, like it, it does, it did for me anyway, like everything seemed to be all, almost in slow motion, but obviously still at real speed mm-hmm. but you I don't know for me I had I felt like I had a lot more time to process things but the way I was processing it wasn't normal like the way I was processing it was very negative and yeah how I was processing things was kind of shadowed by some by something you know the, by something yeah the black dog or the cloud or whatever metaphor you want to use yeah but yeah I, I've I've heard people yeah talk about Similar, probably similar to the mud. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's like moving. Like you know, everything, everything takes more effort. Everything is fatiguing. Everything is like too much effort almost. So yeah, like what you said about having to have a conversation with someone and then it just being draining. Yeah, it's it's especially if it's something like you would avoid a lot of like personal conversations because that mm-hmm. was so much effort. Like more effort yeah. than you could actually like more energy than you actually had at the time in a lot of cases oh for sure for sure and I think um my sister was probably the first one to pick up on it and it was always over the phone because we lived far away from each other she could tell by the way I was speaking that because of the the energy levels um what's the technical term like poverty of speech (laughs) there was just like nothing coming from me and I think just because I, the thought of answering the phone was just a huge thing to get over. So, when did you realize that this might be going on? Because, like, I, I know for me, like, it had been going on for a while before I clicked on to go, oh, actually, I thought I was just, you know, in a rut kind of yeah. thing. And then I went, oh, actually, this is depression. And then I got angry at myself because I'm like, Are you work in this field and you didn't even pick this up. Yeah. So, <laughs> did you, similar, or did you just kind of know? what was happening from the start or I guess I always sort of knew what depression was but it probably what did I I think when I started to having like having urges to hurt myself and I thought oh this has sort of gone next level and then you know Google came into play so (laughs) started googling things and then I thought oh my god I think I've got like depression um so it I, I don't know if I would have actually done something about it though. It was my boyfriend at the time who sort of picked me up and threw me in the car and said, that's it, we're going to the doctors. Um, and, you know, I'm grateful for that because that was sort of my first step. And that the doctor, I ended up getting a mental health care plan. So I was able to access therapy and I went on medication, which I stayed on probably for about a year. Um, and I think that just enabled me to come out of the fog enough to be able to uh, utilize the therapy, like actually immerse myself in it. So the therapy, was it psychology, the therapy? Uh, yeah, psychologist. And we did a lot of CBT, Yep. which I found really practical. So that, that helped me. I, I like really practical stuff. Say, you're a practical person to start with. I so that would, have, yes. uh, that would have resonated more with you mm-hmm. rather than your, your more talking type therapies I guess yeah that stuff helped later in life but at that time I was just in such a crisis um 
I was getting to the point where I was feeling suicidal. Like I needed that really practical support right then and there. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I was grateful for that. So one of the things I'll see if you agree with this. So one of the okay. things I've through my own experience, through my work and all that sort of stuff, like I know ne- I never went on medication. Um, obviously I've worked with a lot of people that did. Uh, and one of the things that through talking with them and their experiences as well is that a lot of them are worried about being on medication long term. So in a lot of cases, they'll stop it themselves and that kind of stuff because like, I don't want to be on this for the rest of my life. Yeah. But I think my perspective on it is on, like, I think medications definitely have a place in mental health care, 100%, no denying that. Yeah. But I think they, they can't be used in isolation I think uh, my opinion is like you need some form of, like you said, practical uh, yeah. intervention as well. So the the medications are really good, especially in that sort of acute stage to, you know, help you get your head right so you can see the world properly and think properly. But then you still need to change something. There's still whatever's triggered or caused or exacerbating these thought patterns is not changed from the medication necessarily. Like you still need to change the environment or to change your skill set or change the things that you do in order to, you know, make a more long term change. Is that would you agree or I agree completely. Um I know lots of people Ooh. who are right. <laughs> Um, very pro-medication, very anti-medication. Yeah. I just think it's one of the tools. Yeah. And I think the as many sort of tools you can use and wrap around a person, or in my case, wrap around me at the time, um, they all played their own part. So without the medication, I don't think I could have functioned enough to be able to turn up to the psychologist appointment. Um Without the psychologist, I wouldn't have been able to address some of my childhood stuff that had been affecting me for a long time, you know, and then without starting to address that stuff, which then helped me to communicate better with my loved ones around me, and it all just was a flow-on effect. So I was never worried about staying on medication forever. Like after a while, I, well, I did a lot of research myself, which I probably should have gone back to the GP. That is what I would recommend. <laughs> but I was really sensible and I weaned myself off it over time. And yeah, I was okay. So thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and no, I just, I think a lot of people, and it's usually more, like if people have been on it for a while, they're usually okay. It's usually when people, in my experience, working with people that sort of are first put on something and they're like, how long do I have to be on it? Because, you know, most prescriptions you go and you get like antibiotics. It's like, here, take this for seven days. Like you get an end date when you yeah. first get the prescription, whereas a lot of mental health, well, all mental health medication that I know of, it's here's a prescription, come back in a month and get more. Like there's no mm-hmm. end date. It's it potentially when you first get on it, it seems like, okay, this is it. I'm on this for the rest of my life. Yeah. And yeah. I think that in itself is, is scary because a lot of those medications do have, you know, some pretty nasty side effects as well yeah absolutely i say nasty that's my perspective like they're they're it depends on the individual whether they perceive the side effects to be worth putting up with for the i guess the mental health benefit oh for sure yeah i have heard some that are pretty debilitating (laughs) um yeah so you're right it depends on the person some people won't get any side effects other people will not want to be on that medication for 
I did try one um, antidepressant that made me so sick. I was on it for two days and I was off my face. Like so nauseous. No, like I was, I, I was on the, I, like I lost all sense of, I lost all my oh, like spatial awareness and it was like I was high, but a really terrible, terrible high. <laughs> like I was oh, wow. falling off the planet. Wow. It was horrible. I've never heard of that. Name and shame? No. it was a long time ago but yeah so it's just it and uh, i was okay at the time to be able to go back to the doctor and say absolutely no i'm not taking this whereas you i know some people that i've worked with who wouldn't have that confidence because they've they've had doctors over the years telling them over and over no 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 go away take this medication so and that's the other thing too, like that same medication, someone else may not have had that reaction as well. And I think that's oh, yeah. that's the issue that a lot of people have with reading reviews on things on Google <laughs> because <laughs> there yes. are their experience is going to be like how they react to a medication is going to be completely different to you know the guy next to them or the next guy down the road. And like it, it's hard to it's hard to get an accurate well, it's impossible to get a really accurate picture of, okay, this is what is going to happen to me just by reading what happened to other people online. Oh, yeah. And like the and the list of side effects that if you have a look at pretty much any medication, most of the side effects are the same. They list them all purely in case something happens because it's a liability thing. So yeah, yeah. even then, like some of the, if you, if you got everything that was on the side of a medication <laughs> box, you would be in a lot of trouble. Oh my god, it's horrific reading some of those boxes. Some of them are rather funny. Some of the side effects yeah. that they just predict you might get. Well, funny in a ironic context, but not. Funny. I was reading the side of a protein powder the other day, and um, it was it's very similar side effects to some of the ones we're talking about now. It's like, oh my god, <laughs> it's in every yeah yeah. They just have to cover themselves, I guess. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the side effects involve not going too far from a bathroom. Yes, Which yeah, is, just set up camp. Uh, but, I mean, that's and that's the thing. Like, just because they've said, oh, you may get this doesn't mean you have to put up with it. Like, if that actually happens to you, you can't live your life, like, 10 metres from a toilet. No, You no. need to go back, have a chat with the doc and go, listen, this ain't good. What yeah. else can we try? Because there are a lot of, a lot, and, and even ever-growing amount of medications that people can try. So it's yeah. just a matter of finding what's right for you. That's right. In a lot of cases. And like we were saying, it's just one part of the puzzle. Yeah, and it, yeah. Yeah, it really is. I, I was speaking to a friend not long ago who, similar situation, gets really low, um, mm-hmm. had been on medication in the past, like years ago, but was sort of umming and ahhing, because was sort of in a low period at that at the time a few weeks ago, and was like, "Oh, do I? Don't I? I don't really want to go on medication." And that was that was my advice to her. I'm like, "You go on the medication, but use it as kind of like a first step or yeah. a, a a way to open the door to be able to then make those more permanent changes, those lifestyle type changes that yeah. will have a longer lasting effect." Yeah, that's a really good analogy. It's opening the door. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think because it works the other way as well. Like I think there are people that get the medication expecting this is going to fix it, mm-hmm. and aren't aren't prepared or aren't ready or aren't even in the know. I guess that this is only step one. Like there's a yes. whole lot of other. 
it's hard. There is a lot of work that needs to be done to feel better. So much. Like it's, it's, it's hard, not hard, a, hard work. It's not like I get a headache, I take a Panadol, the Panadol fixes my headache, which isn't exactly how it works anyway, but that's yes. how 99% of the population view it. Mm-hmm. So it can work the other way. I have worked with people that are like blame the medication for not fixing you know, their symptoms and that kind of thing. I'm like, well, that's it's not exactly how it works. <laughs> no, you have to work at your mental health, unfortunately, just like physical health or anything else. It's, yeah, it's a daily thing. So the alcohol, so the, the reason I didn't, again, I didn't, I had no awareness of any issues that you had with alcohol or anything like that until... Mm-hmm. How long ago was that post that you made? A year ago? Um, oh, it might have, mm, that wouldn't have been a whole year ago. Anyway, you put a post up on Instagram, essentially laying it all out, saying, I've had these <laughs> I issues. I myself. Yeah, you pretty much did. And I, I, I'm not, uh, like, was it an accountability thing? Or, like, why? You made a big post essentially saying, these are the issues I've had. Uh, yeah. I think you'd been recently, it was only a few weeks, recently sober. Mm-hmm. and just brutally honest post and I was like wow like one that's awesome that you've you know taken that step but laying that's it out right. there for other people to see is, is a that's a big thing as well especially for someone who is quiet and usually you know quite withdrawn and and that kind yeah, of thing. reserved yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah you got it in one it was an accountability thing so uh I think I did that post just off, I, I signed up to a 90-day sobriety program, which was online, um, and that was my first stint at, like, the most solid amount of time I'd had sober as an adult. Um, I slipped up once or twice in that time, which I think I said in the post, mm-hmm. but that was the longest time I'd spent and the first time I'd had a really solid go at it and done a lot of work. Um So I did that post because I was like, oh, my God, the 90 days is up. I need to keep going. Like this, I can't go back to this. Um, So, yeah, that's that's what it was about. It was accountability and I thought, surely I'm not the only one (laughs) going through this. Um, Particularly, and I know this sounds bad to say, but working in mental health, a lot of us uh, will have experienced burnout and I know for a fact a lot of, uh, people are using alcohol as like a get through the day sort of thing. Mm. Not get through the day, get through the night to go back to work yeah, the yeah. next day. <laughs> as a coping mechanism. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I was shocked by how many messages I actually got saying, thank you so much for saying this. Um, you've kind of motivated me to have a look at my own drinking. Um, so I think in that way, I was really pleased I put it out. I was nervous as hell putting it out there, though. Like it was very. Even, you were nervous to have this conversation. I can't imagine how nervous you were to put that out. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> um, after that ninety days, though, uh, I I did go back to drinking for a little while. It was probably about two weeks worth. I I had like one or two drinks, and then as soon as that happened, it was just snowball effect. It just straight back into it. And it's shocking how much you can actually drink in that amount of time. And I was like, fuck, fuck, stop, stop. Like you've done all this work. I didn't want to have to take it sort of any further. I didn't, you know, want to go to a facility or anything like that. Um, And I'd been able to put in that work and not get to that point. So 
I stopped again after about that two-week period and coming up in about a week, it'll be 200 days sober. So That's awesome. So how, how much were you drinking before? Like I said, prior to the 90 days, how much, like how often? Yeah. Uh, so over time, and I look back now and realise it was actually for a really long time, but drinking like two bottles of wine a night was nothing. Like that was just normal. Um, and when you add up, add up how many drinks that actually is over a week, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, but it was probably just before I did that 90 day program, maybe the six months leading up to that, I had gotten to the point where I had to drink just to feel normal. Like as soon as I got home, I never drank at work. I didn't say that. (laughs) Um, But as soon as I got home from work, I was downing like half a bottle of wine straight away. And that was just to get the, um, take the effects of my body, like just to bring me back down to baseline. And that's when I realized, my God, I'm just drinking this like water and nothing is happening. I'm just feeling normal again. Yep. Yeah. So it was a fair... I mean, to some people, that doesn't sound like much. To others, it sounds like a lot. But for me, it was really unhealthy. Sounds like a lot to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm not a a big wine drinker, but to me, so to me, that, to me, any wine sounds like a lot because I don't drink wine. But like, how many, how many, how many standard drinks are there in a like average bottle of wine? Like, yeah, seven, six, seven. So a couple of those every night. Yeah, yeah. And if there's like alcohol in the fridge, you can't go to sleep. (laughs) You have to finish it. Oh, really? So you were like buying it every day? Yes. Yeah. So looking back at my bank statements now wow. around that time. Wow. Holy shit. What I'll was I like doing? Getting the pay rise now that you've stopped. Yeah. I was saving hundreds of dollars a week. Yeah. I know. It was scary, but it was an eye opener now. So that, like you said, that sort of, you didn't obviously just start there. Kind of something that gradually happened over a long period of time that kind of built up to drinking that much. Yeah. How did it start? Was it just like we were talking about before with the, you know, just have a drink after work to de-stress kind of thing? Is that how it started or? Yeah, because even as a teenager, um, like I know in Australia, if you're talking generalisations, kids start drinking pretty young at parties. Um, Binge drinking is a huge part of our culture here. Mm. Um, So even as a teenager, I didn't really drink that much. Like there was a few parties where we'd, binge drink but I wasn't a big party goer it wasn't until after school finished and it was probably around that time when I was depressed that I was talking about before that that's when I started drinking of an evening and I was always sort of drinking by myself or if I was like with someone at the time like a partner at the time I was never like go out and get trashed at bars it was very much a drink at home at home relax unwind Um, So it would become like a few glasses of wine, which is totally, you know, socially acceptable. Um, But then it became like, oh, I need to have a whole bottle. Plus I need to have um, a few cones. So marijuana. Um, Then it became like that plus and like another bottle of wine. And then it was like, I couldn't sleep without it. Yeah. Until it sort of escalated over that last sort of the last six months before this program where I was just drinking to feel like a functioning adult. Something I've always wondered is how you can function the next day having drunk that much the night Mm -hmm. before. Because me being the old man that I am, it takes me a week (laughs) to get over any sort of decent amount of drinking. 
Yeah. Does that change when you drink that often or you just, you would be almost, in my head, you'd be almost like perpetually hungover? Well, looking at the time, I was like fine in my head, but looking back, I always had a headache. I always felt dehydrated. I always felt just a little bit like shit. Like you just never felt great. Really tired all the time because obviously you're not getting a proper sleep. Like yep. you're drinking to sleep, but you're not actually sleeping. So I guess, yeah, I guess I probably was permanently hungover, but not to the point where you're like vomiting. Yeah, yeah. It, it was just because your body gets used to it, just like anything else. So you build up your tolerance. Yeah, couple of panadols in the morning, coffee, lots of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of coffee now. I don't even drink at night. Yeah, oh, well, same, same. <laughs> <laughs> so would you say on terms of uh, like drink, like that you were high functioning or was there stuff that that stopped you from being able to do? Yeah, okay. So I think I would I would classify myself as high functioning at that, the whole time. Yep. Um, maybe the last year the cracks really started to show though. So there was a lot more uh, sick days from work. Uh, my migraines increased. Isolation became a thing. Um, you know how much I love training and the gym. Mm. I started choosing drinking instead of going to the gym. That was just unfathomable yeah. to me at one point, but then it became reality. Yep. And I think that was probably another one of the big indicators that I needed help, like to myself. Yep. Um, because I was like, oh my God, like the gym is my thing. Like I love lifting. And the fact that I'm choosing just to sit at home and drink. Yep. When I say choosing, like I was I urge. wanted to go yeah, to the gym. Yeah. The addiction was taking over at that point. Yep. Yeah. So high functioning, but the cracks had really started to show. So you weren't like waking up still feeling a bit wobbly kind of thing? No, 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 never. No. That's the thing. Like I'd gotten to that point where my body was... So, well, I felt like I was so used to it that way. Yeah, Yeah, it was just, it was fine. I don't think you would have been able to tell that I drank a bottle of wine, for example, if we were having a conversation. Yep. It would just be the same. Yeah, that's that fascinates me because I've only ever seen, well, actually, I wouldn't know, but I've only ever consciously known of, uh, like, talking to people who are, like, way at the low functioning end of um the spectrum when it comes to alcohol use yeah but like you said like if like, you wouldn't know if you yeah, if, yeah. if you were talking with you and you'd already had you know a bottle of wine sort of thing you wouldn't you wouldn't know unless you'd you know probably seen you drinking it kind of thing yeah exactly having said that that's from my warped perspective at the time so i don't know but no one ever called me on it like, oh yeah yeah that's a fairly good indicator that it's it's relatively well hidden if you know, no one says anything. Yeah. And when you grow up um, with a lot of alcohol around you, I, I grew up like hating alcohol. I mm. thought it was just horrible. And as kids, I remember always saying, I'm never drinking. Like, that's disgusting. <laughs> and then you end up doing the same thing. Yeah. So it was a, uh, a counsellor I was seeing maybe like two years ago it was after I separated from my husband and my ex-husband and um she looked at me and she goes how long have you been an alcoholic for and it was like my whole world just crashed around me because I had never ever given myself that label yeah I judged that label 
not not to other people, but because there had been that in my family, I'd I had that really emotional attachment to it. Yeah. I was like I'd just been slapped in the face. It was so horrible. Um, and so I don't think I was aware of it until that time. So you had, hadn't put two and two together kind of thing? like No, because it's so socially acceptable. It is in Australia and it's uh, – do you think that's changing? Because I know like it definitely was like when we were growing up because we're about the same age. When, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, like, yeah, like there was alcohol everywhere. Like yeah. every party, every – family get together every you know watching the footy on a friday night like there was there was always a beer around or always you know people around drinking you know rum or whatever it was yeah and it was i think even like you look at you know movies and stuff now like of australia through the 70s and 80s like it was Mm -hmm. always it was a part of australian culture and you know especially beer like beer's you see beer ads and Australia was famous for it for however long. Like it's it's a massive part of Australian culture and I wonder whether I don't drink I used to drink heavily, especially through mm-hmm. uni and that kind of thing, and I don't drink much at all anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have well, I wouldn't say that I have any issue with it. I just I have better things to do pretty much nowadays. Different priorities, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But I so I guess I'm kind of disconnected from that side of Australian culture now a little bit so I don't know but I wonder whether it's changing at all or whether we're still perpetuating that especially binge drinking culture in Australia yeah I'd like to say it's changing but I honestly don't think it really is I mean it's still like one of the leading causes of death in Australia Mm. (laughs) Uh, and all the related things around that I think we still it's still really glamorized in advertising and I'm really acutely aware of all the advertising now because yeah. um, you're like oh that looks so appealing you're like whoa <laughs> they just did a really good job of making that shitty glass of rosé seems so glamorous and amazing <laughs> like it's, it, it's still very really glamorized and it's normalized and um you know you've probably heard people say this a lot but it's it's still, I think, the only drug that people freak out if you say you're not going to use it anymore. Like if I said, oh, I'm quitting smoking, I'm quitting heroin, or I'm quitting like, Yes, that's awesome. Everyone's like, yeah, do it. That's so good. But if you say alcohol, everyone's like, oh, cool, that's good, like a break. Yeah, yeah. Just like a so few weeks. Just right? not, think, not yeah. this weekend kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And like you're still going to drink like later when you've sorted it out. Yeah. People aren't ready for that yet, it seems. Yeah, that is odd. That's an that's. I remember there was an ad on TV a, a while ago, years ago actually, um, mm-hmm. which was pretty much exactly that. I don't know if you remember it. The guy was like, "Yeah, I'm not drinking," and like everyone just goes dead silent. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think it was like a milk ad. It was something weird. It was some other okay. ad, but yeah, it was exactly exactly that. People would like freak out. Like, you, what do you mean you're not drinking? Yeah, it makes people really uncomfortable. Which is weird. This well, yeah, yes. that is so odd. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Yeah, but given any other drug, everyone's sort of really excited that you're going to try and give it up. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, so yeah, the answer to the question is no, I don't think it's changing, unfortunately. Hmm. But I think if you seek out the community that is trying to change it, that's where you'll find your people. That's where you'll find the support that you need. So that's, I'm assuming, what you've done is, I guess, change circles almost? Yeah, so not so much um, 
like friendship circles, I um, all my friends have been pretty wonderful about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you can do this by yourself. And I had tried many times to do this by myself. Um, this was the first time and I'm hoping it sticks this time, but this is the first time I've gone for this long and have felt this strong about it. Um, and I think that's because I, I did, I was accountable. Like I, I put myself out there and said, this is what I'm doing. Mm. And I asked for help and I actively owned the situation and I tried not to attach all that shame to it, which I think is really important um, because a lot of people are going through this exact same thing. (laughs) Um, So I think when I found that 90 day program online, I was able to, it opened up like a whole new world. It didn't just have to be AA. I feel like AA is the traditional route people will go down or just straight to rehab. Um, This gave another, and they're totally like, that's great. If that's the road that you take, this was the road I took. Um, And that opened up like online communities for me, um, which were really helpful. And it's more about not so much picking out the things that are uh, wrong with you, inverted commas, but finding the things within you that you may have forgotten about or lost a long time ago and building yourself back up. So really building up that self-worth. So you're trying to fill up that hole inside you. So more of a loving, positive community way of fixing things. Yep. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. No, no, definitely. It just made me think. So one of the things, and I don't know how much you know about OT, but one of the things, so when we're working with, or our perspective on working with anyone sort of using any substance really is the substance use itself serves a purpose it has a meaning to that individual and a lot of the traditional you know like quit smoking ads and you know uh, any sort of programs that were to do with quitting or giving up anything substance use were always just it's bad it's unhealthy take it away Um, from an ot perspective we would see that as almost like creating you would create a vacuum if you just take something away Mm-hmm. There's still a need of some sort that is that that substance was filling for that person that now has nothing. And yeah. a human's natural instinct when they have this unmet need is to fill it with whatever they know. And what they know is substance use. Mm-hmm. So that was from our perspective, from a, a professional perspective, that would be why you see like people that quit smoking cold turkey has like, a, uh, I think it's like an 11% success rate because yeah, it's not great. <laughs> they're just stopping. There's not filling it with anything. So when we're working with people who use substances and they they want to quit, it's about, well, okay, let's find something that you can do that fills that same need. So it's a lot of it is going to be about like really having a close look at why people are using whatever mm-hmm. they're using to work out what need is it actually filling kind of thing so like i've worked with people for example who use substances but it's for a social need it's because they, they don't know how to connect with other people so the only way they know is they know if they use substances there's other people around like they'll other people will come to their house or they can they'll get it from wherever and they actually are able to connect so for in that instance it's about trying to find other things they can do to meet that social need yeah. Whereas, you know, for some people it might be uh, escaping 
something. It might be trying to block something out. It might be overwork, overstress, even sort of minor substance use, overwork, overstress. You're trying to sort of relax. So it'd be about finding other things. Was there anything that you did or what did you do to, I guess, kind of replace that when you, when you stopped? Yeah. So when I stopped, I became obsessed with researching. Okay. Um, Like researching other people who had, and other people like in a similar situation to myself. So, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s kind of age bracket, um, working, high-functioning kind of, I don't know, I'm trying to explain how I'm, I'm I was trying to find people like me (laughs) that had been through the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So I was spending a lot of time on blogs and podcasts and reading. Um, I threw myself back into the gym. I started walking again. Like I walked so many kilometres, <laughs> just like you leave your F postcard at home so you can't buy alcohol when <laughs> yep. you go out. And then I just walk. Um, but yeah, a lot of walking. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it gave me that headspace to to ask for help and to throw myself into that program. I don't – so the program was probably was what replaced it. Yep. That took a lot of my time, emotional energy, and you're left with a lot of space and time in your head when you're not drinking. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the answer. It was asking for help, being honest about it, and, yeah. So engaging that in that, so initially engaging in that 90-day program would have been what replaced it. But you said earlier that once that finished, you were like, oh, shit, what do I do now? Yeah, yeah. Did you, I, what, did you, what did you do, like, to replace the 90-day program then? That's when I knew I had to own it. Like I was like, okay, I've done the 90 days. I've really got to, like, if this is my new life, mm. I have to commit to this wholeheartedly. Yep. So I guess I'm, to be honest, I guess I'm still trying to find that replacement. Yep. Um, but lifting, so like my my passion for lifting and getting stronger and helping other people with that became forefront again. Mm-hmm. So I threw myself back into that and just that daily being conscious daily of I'm not going to drink today and I'm going to, you know, be kind to myself and try and help other people as well, I guess, was the replacement. So you're still working because I know you've started PTing again. Mm -hmm. You're still working in mental health at the same time? Like doing mental health work? Yeah, I'm still doing mental health. Um, I had to take a bit of time off because of my foot. Ah, Um, yep. Yeah, but now that that's slight, up, slight injury setback. <laughs> yeah, there was a major injury setback. Um, <laughs> but in about two weeks from now, I'll be back up and running full time with both sort of things. So metaphorically running. Y- yes. Yeah. No, there will be no running. <laughs> I don't like running. You know that. <laughs> oh, don't want to injure your foot again. No, the doctor was like, "Whatever you do, don't get on a treadmill." <laughs> okay. That's fine. Damn, I was really hoping to get on that treadmill. <laughs> Thanks, Doc, for the recommendation. Yeah. No. So what? where to from here, I guess? Like you're obviously actually you're in a space by the sounds of it where you're looking for complete abstinence from alcohol. Like, Yeah. I. It's not that I want it to be like that. Um, but it has to be. I, 
It has to be. I know now that yeah. it has to be. Do you think, are there people, and I know, like you said, you've done a lot of research and looking for other people in similar situations. Are there people that are able to like cut back to moderation kind of thing? Or is it quite common that it's just, that's it, no more? I think, no, of course there's people that can can moderate their drinking. But I think if you're at a point where you've tried to moderate your drinking more than a handful of times, you yeah, probably yeah. can't moderate your drinking. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to weigh up what what you want your life to look like because we only get one. And if you're going to spend all of your emotional energy and time trying to moderate something that you could eliminate altogether and just free up that space altogether for something much more enriching that's going to make your life worth it, then that's that's my answer. I think some people can, but... It's not me. <laughs> so were you? So you would have been drinking whilst you were on like your your mental health medication and like throughout that period of like fluctuations in your depression and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that had an impact, either chemically or just lifestyle wise, on like either the frequency or the severity of those? What would you call them? Those waves when it came back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think absolutely it affected it. Like alcohol's a depressant. It, you know, it can't be a good way of doing it. And it, you're just band-aiding things the whole time. Um, I think it definitely affected my depression. Uh, I will say, though, with anxiety, that came, that the worst anxiety I've ever had was when I stopped drinking. It was almost like I just all the skin had been ripped off me and I was just bare to the world and yep. everything was just like attacking the body and the mind. Yeah. And I didn't have that band-aid, that quick fix. Like I couldn't just quickly have a wine and everything just sort of would calm. So the panic attacks through the night were something I really had to get used to. And they're not happening now, thank goodness. But it yeah, it's funny the different ways it will affect you. So I think it made my anxiety worse for a period of time. But I think it, like taking it away. Yeah, yeah. But I think the depression it really affected it in a negative way the whole time. So with the anxiety, do you think it? Do you think that taking the alcohol away, like, started it, or do you think that just the fairly constant use was kind of masking it and hiding it for so long? Yeah, masking it and hiding it because I I still would have little bouts of anxiety. Um, but it was just raw once he took the alcohol away. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously that I would say like the alcohol was the coping mechanism for especially the anxiety. What mm-hmm. sort of things, and you were saying before that you did, uh, oh, no, that was ages ago you said you did the CBT. Yeah. So like, that, what, what that coping, was what coping, ago. what I'm asking is what coping mechanisms or what sort of coping mechanisms have you developed since to help mm-hmm. with the, the anxiety that obviously aren't alcohol related? Yeah. Um, meditation apps on my phone. If yeah, that's you, awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sometimes you just need to come back to yourself and just go back inward and take it, all the distractions away and just go back inward. You'll find your breath again. Um, so meditation apps on my phone were a really practical way of doing it. Um, out being outside, if I was inside or in the car or in bed, that's that would be really stressful for me. So I'd get out. So the restriction of a house is something yep. that I need to get out. So outside, 
feet on the grass or in the sand. That is helpful. Um, yeah, telling someone. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm a, I'm a, a big advocate for the, the meditation apps. Yeah. Because I think they're, I mean, mindfulness and meditation is, I feel, super important and something that in just even the way modern society is structured is, is something that we just don't even consider and we don't do. And mm-hmm. I think the, the apps, especially the quality of apps that are out there, is a really good, easy way to get into it. Because um, most people, if you just went, oh, go and meditate, you wouldn't have a clue what to do. What, so I just sit here and, you know, don't say anything for a little while. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's actually a really active. Even though, yeah, you're just you're not moving. Even mm-hmm. though you can be moving sometimes, depending on what sort it is, but it's a really active thing. It takes a lot of brain power to actually do it for me, anyway. Oh, for sure. But you've got someone telling you what to do. That's yeah. all. So that's really helpful. Favorite app. Oh. Or which one? Which which ones have you used? Which ones have you used? I'd have to go onto my phone. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> That's not prepared. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I know a lot of people use the Headspace app, but I think it's not my favorite. It, okay. It's good. My favorite is Calm. Yeah, I've seen ads for that. Yeah, it's. I I have the like the full paid subscription one version of it. Yeah. Um, and I like it because. It's probably one of the cheaper ones to get the full version. It's still fairly mm-hmm. expensive. I think it's about 60 bucks a year, but the amount of content and the types of content that are in it are mm-hmm. really good. Like there's specific like short courses for anxiety, for concentration, for sleep, for whatever. And I, I, I like it because, and I'm not sure how you use it, but some people will use it like I'm feeling anxious. I need to kind of like acutely. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also similar, I guess, to what we're talking about with medication, like really good acutely. Yeah. But there's something else that needs to happen in the background. And I think the Calm app is really good in that it works at uh, building a routine around yeah. it. So there's a, I think it's a seven days of anxiety course, so you like every day for seven days kind of thing. And it's about building or doing it as a routine, not when you're in the height of an anxiety attack, but doing it as a routine to help, I guess, stop getting to that point. Yeah. So that's why I like that particular app. But there's, there's heaps. There's a new one that's I haven't tried just because it's super expensive. Is the Sam Harris one, I think. Okay. What's that one about? Oh, I can't remember what it's called. But I know, I do remember having a look on their website and it's similar in that it's about building routine, but it's it seems to be more general. So... Mm-hmm. It has like 50, you know, 50 days of just every day and they go through all different types of topics. They're not, it didn't seem to be like you couldn't choose specific courses on specific kind of topics. So it's apparently yeah. really good too. So, but I I, I do have a feeling it was quite expensive. No, it's worth it. It is, and it is, especially, <laughs> if, you, it's worth it. especially if you're committed to using it. Like to me, like 60 bucks isn't, a huge amount for me. I know it is for a lot of people, but especially seeing, I was like, I'm going to use this every day. Yeah. To me, that's worth it. For sure. It's yeah. worth the investment. Yeah. I like the ones where you can pick how long, like you have time to meditate for. <laughs> like if I've got 10 minutes to calm down, <laughs> I will pick a 10 minute app sort of option. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that's good that they do that as well. I think the Sam Harris one has that, uh, mm-hmm. but like it's, you know, some of them are just like either calming music or they just, they're not really guided. Yeah. From I what I that. saw, the Sam Harris one was you pick your length and it would do a guided one to that length kind of thing. And I know Calm has that as well. I don't know about yeah. Headspace. I haven't used it enough to, yeah. to be able to say that. But yeah, being able to to choose how long. And a lot of the the course ones in, in Calm are fairly short, but there's other longer ones that, you know, the, the, some of the, one of the courses I was doing was like a 28 days for calm i think mm-hmm. and it would it was almost like it was teaching you how to meditate in that it would start off like the first few days were like 10 12 minutes and it would gradually build up so yeah. that you know towards the end of the 30 days or whatever it was you were doing you know 25 minutes kind of thing so, yeah, so good. it was kind of a progression like that and i like that kind of stuff because i'm really bad at just diving into things and then failing and then going <laughs> oh it didn't work <laughs> So no, something that's something that's a little bit more progression wise yeah, it works for me. Yeah, no, I like that. That's good, and I think it is something that you it's beneficial and worth committing to in the long run. I mean, if that's going to get us through critical times, imagine if we used it every day and it just became a part of our daily self care. Yeah, well, as I think, much as we would have our cup of coffee. Well, that's when I would do it. <laughs> Yeah. So I just built it into. I was. I was, uh, did a phase where I was like, I'm going to build like a a morning routine, pretty yeah. much. So I built that into that. I would make coffee. I would meditate for ten minutes, and then mm-hmm. I would drink the coffee, and then you know whatever else I needed to do on my morning routine. Yeah. But then uh, the and yeah, and it was one of the, I call it, I do these little life experiments. I call it experiments. It was one of the mm-hmm. best little life experiments that I've. I've done so far in terms of it really set me up in a positive way for the rest of the day. Yeah. So I I hate, I'm I'm really slow in the morning. So like even for this, like we podcast, we started at eight, like I got up at seven because if I got up any later than that, I'd still be asleep by the time we started. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm a slow starter to the day. So, but acknowledging that and then planning around it helps me. So I'm not like, get out of bed, get in the car, go to work, because it would take me until 10 in the morning before I actually was able to function. Yes, okay. You're owning it, Brock. That's it. That's it. <laughs> owning it. It took me a while to even work that out, but it, a lot of that self-care stuff I think is important for uh, not just anxiety, but just good mental health in general. Absolutely. Yeah. It. <laughs> All that stuff that we talk about all the time, like it actually works. <laughs> like weirdly enough, routine, yeah. meditation, exercise, sunshine, community. That was and that was so. I had, when I was feeling really low, it was a few years ago now that this happened. Um, but that was one of the things, like a friend of mine who again was almost like an accountability buddy, I guess, mm-hmm. was like I had. I think it was four things that I had to do every day and that was it. Like she just wanted me these four things and it was journal, meditate. I had to spend 10 minutes outside, not not yeah. like not on a screen, not anything, just sitting outside. In I had to be in the sun. Mm-hmm. Like you realize how 10 minutes in the sun in Townsville, that's like <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah. yeah, especially in summer. Jeez. <laughs> but anyway, so I did that. Uh, and the yeah. other one was I think it was – 
drink two liters of water a day sort of thing. So I had like, and that was it. That's all. Yeah. And just having those really simple little things helped. And I found that what I would end up doing is to me, like that was it. That was my priority. Like I had work and classes to teach and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't have classes to teach at the time, but like clients to see and that kind of thing. But I would structure everything. Like my my focus was those four things because to me, like that was it. That's how I'm going to get in the right headspace kind of thing. And it did work. Just having that little bit of extra structure and something to focus on. Yeah. Made such a big difference. Well, yeah, you were helping yourself so you could help other people. <laughs> like putting your oxygen mask on first. That is, I love that analogy. That's yeah. probably the best thing that airline travel's ever done for the world is that analogy. <laughs> That's true. I use it for everything. I use it so Well, it's often. so true though, isn't it? You can't help other people unless you're, you know, squared away yourself, so. Yeah, the one that resonated most with me, and I, I'm not actually a big fan of analogies, but I seem to use them a lot, um, is you can't pour from an empty cup. So really looking after yourself, yeah, so yes. you can really give. I have heard that one as well. There's a whole um, uh, like a metaphor sort of story therapy thing around uh, like emotional cups and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So I think uh, I don't know if that's where that came from or they've built that around the that saying because that saying's been around forever. But yeah, yeah, I I do remember hearing about emotional intelligence and being able to refill the bucket. I think it was a bucket actually. Refill your this bucket and that bucket and <laughs> yeah fair enough all the buckets awesome well thank you, have you a lovely weekend. so much i will been a blast as always as always and i'll um i'll let you know when i'm down your way next time and i'll have to catch up yes wait sounds good awesome cool thanks right. bro thanks dude okay. have a good one bye hey? you too see ya so if i turn it up on your end but then turn it down on mine i'm not screaming in my own ear Yes. Okay, if you can hear me, we're good because you're perfect. Well, thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Jeez. Wow, this has got off to a great start. <laughs>